The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let us listen together now for God's word as it echoes to us from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with the 14th verse. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So then, Putting aside all falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. This past Tuesday, Pete Wells Restaurant critic for the New York Times reviewed 11 Madison Park, one of New York City's finest and most expensive dining establishments. In fact, in 2017, in those halcyon pre-pandemic days, 11 Madison Park, with its three Michelin stars, was declared by one internet site the best restaurant in the world. 11 Madison Park recently reopened and chef Daniel Hum announced that its new incarnation would be entirely vegan, 
No meat, no dairy. It was a bold move, and according to Pete Wells, not a particularly successful one. <laughs> Actually, that's putting it mildly. Every, every few years, if you follow Wells, he uncorks a critical review of a restaurant that is so blistering, so eye-popping in its takedown that it immediately goes viral. Wells can be both brutal and simultaneously funny, uh, unless, of course, you're the subject of his withering criticism. This time, his chief beef, if you'll pardon the pun, is not that 11 Madison Park went vegan, but that the vegetables emerging from the kitchen do not taste like themselves. You almost feel sorry for them, Wells writes, before observing that one particularly tortured beet smelled like a joint and tasted like lemon pledge. Wells' review made me laugh, too, and then wince, and then start to reflect. It pushed me to think about today's passage from the good book and the classic challenge contained therein. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells Christians that they need to stop being fickle, and resist being blown hither and yon by the winds of the times. And then he urges the faithful in Ephesus to speak the truth in love. Almost 2,000 years have passed since Paul tossed this gauntlet at the feet of early Christians, and we still haven't really managed to pick it up. We're still trying to figure out how to speak the truth with love. Why is it so hard for us to offer critical perspectives without demeaning other people? And why is it so difficult for us to hear criticism without feeling personally wounded? Can we do better? How? How can we achieve this luminous ethic, truth, and love. How can we hold tightly to both of these moral imperatives? Now these questions are not, as you know, a parlor game. They are of critical importance for our city, our country, and our world. Our, over the last 20 years, our inability to speak truth to each other with humility respect, and compassion has all but incapacitated this society. Our discourse is broken. We take offense far too easily. We give offense far too often. We pour our energy into entrenched battles where the sparks fly, but little progress, if any, is made. It is, as many have observed, so much easier, so much easier to tear something down than to build something or someone up. In all this, the good book understands our predicament, and it actually suggests a course correction. Stay committed to the truth, says Ephesians, while at the same time striving to build each other up in love. 
And that sounds like an impossible goal, except for one thing. Deep down, we know, we know, we have to get better at this. Our relationships, our families, our schools, our churches, our workplaces, the tattered fabric of our society depends on us figuring out how to hold on to truth and love at the same time. So church, this morning, let's take a run at the impossible. Let's contemplate putting the ethic that Ephesians proposes into practice in our lives, and let's begin by listing two basic, I might even say indisputable facts about human beings. Number one, nobody really enjoys being criticized. And number two, we all enjoy playing the critic. Everyone thinks they have good opinions, and basically we believe that others would benefit from hearing them. <laughs> this morning we're going to examine both the positive and negative aspects of these conflicted, so very human tendencies. Starting with tendency number one, nobody really enjoys being criticized. It's difficult to hear criticism. Why? Well, some people immediately assume that any criticism directed their way is deserved. I've been found out. These folk fear that they're only moments away from some crushing feedback that will expose them as frauds or incompetence or worse. For some, the weight of criticism is almost unbearable. On the other end of the spectrum, though, we find those who deflect every criticism. Some folk are pretty confident that they are already doing the best that they can, and these individuals have a sort of personal firewall in their heads. They shoot laser beams at incoming critiques. Before a critic has even finished speaking, voices in their heads say, nope, not true. <laughs> not nuanced, not helpful, I don't need to hear this. This person does not understand my intentions, appreciate my context, know my backstory. This critic hasn't taken into account all the mitigating factors that undercut their so-called constructive comments. And, and what's more, I do not trust their intentions. For some unhealthy reason, they're not trying to build me up, but tear me down. And now here's the tricky part. That firewall is not always wrong. <laughs> Criticism is not always helpful, constructive, or even warranted. Sometimes it's just plain cruel. Once, early in my time as a pastor, I had a fellow pull me aside after a church service. I just want to give you a friendly heads up, he said. His words suggested that he cared and wanted to let me in on some secret of consequence. He continued, glancing down at my feet, your shoes are embarrassing us. <laughs> my, my shoes, I responded, truly confused. Yes, he said, the cheap, rubber-soled, J.C. Penny lace-ups you're wearing to worship are not up to this congregation's standards. 
Word to the wise, get yourself a pair of leather-soled wingtips and soon. And with that, he slapped me on the shoulder and walked away. I was devastated. I was so ashamed. And yes, context matters. I was a new pastor with two little kids and too many loans. We were scraping by. The more I thought about the criticism, the more I steamed, how dare he, how dare he pull me aside in a church hallway to deliver a sucker punch. I couldn't imagine anything less loving, more demeaning. How did I respond? Well, I spent a few days steaming, and then, still steaming, I went out and bought some wingtips, shoes that I could not afford. For the next three years, every time I pulled those waxed laces tight, I remembered that humiliating moment and the man who shamed me. In his book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt, Albert Brooks argues that when you condemn someone, when you show contempt for someone, you sink the possibility of ever having meaningful dialogue with that person. You will never, says Brooks, be able to persuade them that what you're doing is anything more than character assassination. We've all been on the receiving end of toxic criticism. And we've all been on the giving side of toxic criticism too. I'll get to that in a moment. For now, I want us to stay focused on the receiving side. How do we know when criticism is toxic? What should be our Christian response to comments that sting? I want to suggest this morning that our response to criticism ought be tailored by Ephesians, and it ought to have three phases to it, three steps. Step number one. Embrace the good book's advice in regard to anger. It's right there in today's passage. Be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Paul allows that anger is at times inevitable as a human response, but he counsels us not to hold on to it. Let anger go before the sun goes down. Do not let it eat at you. Do not spend a single precious hour contemplating revenge. Do not make room for the devil in your life. Do not turn anger into your friend. Now I know, I know this all sounds so doggone Christian. Somewhere in our minds there's a voice paraphrasing St. Augustine saying, God help me not to sin, but not just yet. First I've got a little revenge to orchestrate. It's a small thing really, just a little cosmic payback that I want to deliver. I'll, I'll balance the scales, God, and then, then I promise from that moment on I won't let the sun go down on my anger. This is human nature. <laughs> But it's also how we enter a toxic cycle, and we all know that this cycle does not end with one person getting revenge, all's done. It never ends. We all, all, all want the last word. Step one, 
let go of anger. Step two, consider the truth of what's being said. Has the other person offered important feedback, feedback that will help you grow? This is an open-ended question. You may ultimately decide that incoming criticism is off-base, unwarranted, or unfair, and that's okay. The key here is owning our part in the search for truth, and that depends on us giving criticism a good, honest think, not dismissing it out of hand. In his book, Unoffendable, Brant Hansen argues that many of us have become too soft when it comes to hearing feedback. We've decided that if something stings, it must be unfair. And this is the tricky part, right? Criticism, even criticism that feels uncomfortable, isn't necessarily wrong. Here, Hansen challenges us to do some soul searching. He said, if, he says, if, if you're constantly being hurt, offended, or angered, you should honestly evaluate your own inflamed ego. Step one, do not be governed by your anger. Step two, consider, really consider the truth of criticism. These two first steps take time. They depend on reflection and not snap decisions. And the third step, commended by Ephesians, also takes time, a long time. It wants to rebuild our whole way of looking at the world. Step three wants to rewire our hearts, and it goes like this. Look at your critic and respond to your critic with love. So, let's go back to that fellow who criticized my shoes and who made me feel so small and very ashamed. Against the teaching of our faith, I held on to my anger against him and I let it fester. Eventually though, over the course of three or four years, things got better. What made my anger fade? Well, first, I came to realize that this fellow was telling me in a very imperfect way something true. It wasn't a deep truth or a self-critical truth, it was an unhealthy truth about the expectations people can have for their pastor. It was a botched effort, but he was actually trying to help. I also came to realize over time that he too was a hurting fellow. And I'm not gonna go into details, but I later learned that he felt diminished in the eyes of that community. It took me a long time, but I eventually realized that on the day he pulled me aside, he too was in an awful place. It took me a long time to love him. Now I wanna be clear. I'm not trying to excuse this guy for saying harmful things or to ask you to give me a pass for holding on to my anger. I'm not trying to toss the word love on top of a set of unhealthy dynamics as if that magically makes everything hunky-dory. It, it doesn't. Receiving and giving criticism is difficult work. Interpersonal conflict is about the most difficult thing our egos ever have to manage. We are complicated and messy beings. And Ephesians gets this. 
Jesus gets this. According to scripture, Jesus knows our weaknesses. But still, the faith doesn't give us a pass. The good book challenges us to embrace the impossible. You can summarize all of God's commands, says Christ, with a simple two-part phrase, love God and love your neighbor. Now, why put this on us? Why make our task so doggone difficult? Unless, of course, it's our only hope. Anger, says Brant Hansen, is extraordinarily easy. It's our default setting. Love is very difficult. Love is a miracle. Okay, to sum up, Christians are called to do three things when standing on the receiving end of criticism. Let go of anger, consider honestly and carefully the truth of what is being said, and move forward in love. Always return to love as your touchstone, and as hard as this feels, and sometimes it will feel really, really hard, Stand on and surround yourself with love. Now, what sort of recommendations does Ephesians have for those who want to, who need to speak critical truths to another? Guess what? It's the exact same three things. Step one, check your anger. When offering criticism to a partner or a co-worker or a friend or a rival as people of faith, we must first let go of anger. Relinquishing our anger does not mean we've given up on the truth or on seeking justice or on trying to make the world a better place. It actually means we're trying to be effective in pursuing all those things. How so? Well, it's simple. Because when we are angry in speaking to others, Do you know what they hear? Anger and almost nothing else. If you want to communicate, if you want to move the needle and change things, lose the rage. Step two, spend time considering the truth of what you're about to say before you speak. In today's world, we all need to renew our passion for truth. And in this, we need to be brutal with ourselves, to force ourselves to look at the big picture, to consider all the facts, and to couch our criticisms in context. And we need to be humble. Each of us has a limited perspective. Now, am I saying be milk toast, waffle, never deliver hard news? Ephesians recommends nothing of the sort. We must be bold, we must be clear, and at the same time, we must acknowledge the provisional nature of our criticism. We don't know everything. Step two reminds us that we need to be humble in our pursuit of truth. Step three, everything that we say to each other, critical or otherwise, ought to be conveyed with clear regard for the other, with love. And this is so hard to do. I know there are those who think that when preachers 
lapse into love thy neighbor talk, that they have given up any hope of having really tough conversations and addressing the world's most entrenched challenges. But this is only true if we have an underdeveloped understanding of love. The demands of Christian love are complicated, layered, and extremely challenging. Love is so much more than shouting, can't we all just be nice to each other? That's certainly true even in that restaurant review I was talking about earlier. If you read it all the way to the end, you'll move past the criticisms to a point where Pete Wells speaks about the enormous respect that he has for all the restaurants out there in this city, given what they've had to endure over the past two years. And if you read it all the way to the end, you'll get to the part where he speaks respectfully about 11 Madison Park. Over the years, this is a restaurant that's reinvented itself multiple times, and each time, the critic confesses, he's been amazed at its talent for overcoming its own missteps. Love, as presented to us by Jesus, calls us to engage the other, the neighbor, the stranger, and even the enemy with humility, mutual respect, honesty, and compassion. In this, Jesus, Jesus was clear. <laughs> to love, to really love, we have to put our own self at risk. Love demands that we travel an extra mile, suffer hits to our own egos, and yes, Jesus actually says this, lay down our lives. In seeking to better understand the other, work with the other, grow with the other. When Amy and I got married, we knew that we came from two very different families with two very different ways of having conflict. One family was prone to yelling and storming away from the dinner table, the other to brooding silences that could last for a long time. I'll let you guess which was which. <laughs> in any case, I think we reached a turning point early in our marriage when we figured out that to grow in love, we each needed to provide feedback in a way that the other could process. I needed her to be more direct, and she needed me to be less robust in prosecuting my concerns. Basically, to get there, we began to have what I called fight post-mortems. <laughs> when tempers had cooled, we would not relitigate the argument. Instead, we would discuss what we felt during the argument. We would say things like, it's not really helpful to me when you say things like this or do things like this. We stumbled onto this pattern but it worked. Slowly, we taught ourselves to have conflict in a way that was grounded in love. Can our society learn to have healthier conflict? In preparing today's sermon, I was repeatedly drawn back to a verse at the heart of today's passage, verse 29, which reads, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only 
what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Now, I don't have a tattoo, like Werner, but if I was to get one, it might be this. Ephesians 4.29 is the sort of advice I feel like I need close at hand all the time, and maybe you do too. Grounded in our understanding of who God is in Jesus, one who forgives and loves and extends grace, Ephesians beckons us to become more like Christ. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths. But only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Only what is useful. Last week I stared and stared at those four words. Only what is useful. What if our world were to approach conflicted situations on a personal level and a political level with that as our mantra? I will only say and only do what is useful. I won't give myself over to anger. I won't take offense so easily. I won't celebrate my opponent's losses or quietly revel in their pain. I will love God and I will love my neighbor and I will try at all times, but especially when it feels hard to say only what is useful. Are we, on behalf of our troubled world, ready to embrace this impossible challenge? Speak the truth with love. Go from this place knowing the love of God, the blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.